I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a look back at some of my favorite episodes from 2023 covering sports and pop culture. It is so hard to win on the PGA Tour. We're putting our whole life into this and we're sacrificing a lot to go out there. You've got to be a little mad to live in this world. I could potentially grow up and get paid to be a mermaid. Oh my God. I'm a massive star, and I'm gay. Though surrounded by cameras, caddies, and other competitors, a professional golfer is all alone from the tee to the green. For members of the PGA, millions of dollars are on the line each weekend. But navigating the personal and professional hazards off the course are just as challenging. The Netflix series Full Swing follows a handful of golfers looking to claw their way up the leaderboard. With challenges both physical and mental, we see some fight for a win at a major, some looking for a chance to break out of the middle of the pack, and veterans in danger of falling off the tour and out of professional golf. In March, I talked to Full Swing executive producer Paul Martin about the dramatic twists and turns of last year's PGA Tour. But the biggest headlines had little to do with a clutch putt or a bad lie. It was a year of massive change for the sport. Tiger Woods returned to the tour after surviving a near-fatal car crash, one that left the legend barely able to walk. For him to appear even for a short time on the course was once unthinkable. But another once unthinkable development happened that could change golf forever. Obviously, the other big presence that's looming over the season uh, and still is uh, in your documentary is Live Golf, the new competitor to the PGA. Players are being offered huge money just to play, but the league is financed by the Saudis who have this terrible record on human rights. And what's interesting about what you show us is that this is a real opportunity for someone like Ian Poulter, who's no longer winning money on the PGA tournament and he has, you know, this lifestyle and this family that he's still trying to support. You're there for five days packing your bags and leaving without getting a check. So working for free doesn't doesn't float my boat. I'm not traveling to the US Open because I'm not in. I'm not in the top 60 of the world rankings. I'm going to be here at home um with my family, and there is the first live event down the road. Him framing it as a business decision and a monetary decision to go to live contrasted with someone like Dustin Johnson's decision to go to live. For me, it was playing less, making more money. Pretty simple. Someone offered anyone a job, doing the same thing they're already doing, but less time at the office, and they're going to pay them more pretty sure you're going to take it. And something's wrong with you if you didn't. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because it seems less simple when you look at Dustin Johnson and looking at Ian Poulter. I mean, these are two very different players making this kind of decision, right? Yeah, and I think think it just comes down to the fact that everyone's different and everyone has a slightly different... You know, everyone has a slightly different compass on things. And I think that 
you know, I think Dustin was, you know, was very open about the reasons that he was going and he didn't care what people thought, you know, he genuinely believed in, in the reasons that he thought, you know, Ian probably had a harder time, you know, there, there was, he was at a slightly different stage of his career. He really wanted to be the captain of the, of the Ryder Cup team. And, and he knew that if he took the kind of the money from Liv, that his chances of doing that were, were, were probably going to kind of vanish. And so, I think it probably was a harder decision for Ian than it was for Dustin, you know. And the same for Brooks. I think for Brooks, there was a different set of kind of metrics to, to kind of weigh up. The journey you've been told about Saudi Arabia is on. How is that journey helping the women oppressed in Saudi Arabia, the migrant groups, their rights violated, the LGBTQ individuals who were criminalised, the families of the 81 men who were executed in March, and those being bombed in Yemen? It's a really hard question to answer. You know, we're just we're just here to focus on the golf. I'm not here to kind of defend live golf or or, or even attack live golf. I just think that we took the view that we were going to cover the we were going to cover that through the eyes of the, the players that we were kind of following, and we weren't necessarily going to editorialize about the rights and the wrongs of it. We just wanted to show that you know it created dilemmas for these players where they had a decision of do I stay or do I go. And if I st- if I go, there's a hell of a lot of money. But if I stay, there's legacy and and there's all that. But for the reasons why they went, are all completely, you know, unique to them because everyone's different and everyone has different, you know. I don't know enough about Dustin's personal circumstances or Ian's personal circumstances to to really know, you know, why they ultimately made that decision. But we. You know, we were lucky enough to to see it and to see that everyone handled it in a very different way. It's said that football is the ultimate team sport, but one player on every team is the greater among equals. The difference between victory and defeat lies on the shoulders of the quarterback. He must be an incredible athlete, a shrewd tactician, a leader among his squad, and be as big a superstar off the gridiron as he is on it. The Netflix series Quarterback follows the fortunes of Patrick Mahomes, Marcus Mariota, and Kirk Cousins throughout the 22-23 season. One worked for a Super Bowl ring, one made a record-setting comeback, and one struggled just to stay on the team. In July, I talked to directors Tim Rumpf, Shannon Furman, and Matthew Dissinger about some of the other roles these quarterbacks play at home as husbands and fathers. So, Shannon, we see one of the off-field, unofficial roles of the quarterback in Mariota's story as he and his wife try and find ways to become part of the Atlanta community. Can you talk about why this is important to some athletes and quarterbacks in particular? Um, yeah, I mean, the being part of the community is super important to Marcus. I think it a lot of it goes back to how he grew up, um, to his Hawaiian and Samoan roots. He still does a ton there as far as all of that stuff goes. So he had some help from Matt Ryan, former Falcons quarterback. Um, he kind of connected him to a lot of the things that he used to do. So right away, he was able to get involved in the community and just kind of jump right in. 
I mean, Marcus, he's, Marcus's wife runs his foundation. It's a big part of what he does. He doesn't even have social media. The only social media he has is his foundation's page. So, I mean, it's kind of speaks to like who he is as a person, just how he was brought up by his parents and what he's all about. So, Tim, I don't think we can talk about Kirk Cousins without talking about how grounded he is in his faith, right? They live, he and his wife, fairly modestly. And I do wonder how much that sort of very kind of relatable life that they seem to live is grounded in his faith, because it does seem to infuse pretty much every aspect of his day, of his evening, and of just sort of the way that he is as a human being. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a big part of his character and who he is as a person. Um, I know his dad is a pastor, and so that's how he was raised. Um, and, you know, giving back to the community and all that is a big part of it. One of the things that kind of jumped out at me, too, as well, arriving at his house, and obviously this is a person that's made a lot of money over his career, um, but I think he just has other things in his life that are important. I don't think he's a very flashy individual. Um, so it really kind of fit him at the end of the day once I got to know him. It, you know, if he lived in a massive mansion, that might almost feel a little out of place for Kirk Cousins as, as we get to see through these uh, eight episodes. How surprised were you when you saw the secret room in his house in which he keeps all of his football memorabilia, including, by the way, non-football memorabilia, his acapella uh, group right. memorabilia, but he doesn't he doesn't display it in his house at all. <laughs> I mean, exactly. That goes right back to that point where a typical athlete of his stature, what you'd expect for them to have this huge basement with their jerseys all over the place and kind of a shrine to themselves. But he specifically wanted it to be tucked away because he thought it was too self-serving and didn't want other people to kind of have to see it in, in their face while they're hanging out. But he still wanted a little place where he could go in and have a little memory room, as he called it. What I thought was really funny about it was that the way he described it was, he asked me if I ever saw the movie Richie Rich. It's like, yeah, I mean, of course, when I was a kid. It was like, basically, you know, at the end of that movie, they're trying to find the vault where they have all the valuables and it ends up just being these family mementos that mean, you know, all the world to them, but are have no value to anybody else. And that's exactly what he had in his memory rooms. I mean, aside from his jerseys and stuff like that. So he has a signed photo with William Shatner, who he calls the actual Captain Kirk. You know, like you mentioned, he had an acapella t-shirt um, and little things like that. I think he had notes from his father that had, he had written him when he was 10 years old. So it was really cool to see that side of him and how all these little moments throughout not only his football career, but his life, he saves to kind of remember the path that he's taken to get where he is now. Hmm. I think it's fair to say that all three of the quarterbacks in this series are really family guys. I mean, I, I'm not being uh, cute about it. I mean, they really all seem to be. And I want to talk a little bit about the partnerships and the marriages that we see, because all three wives are incredibly supportive, really seem to be very much all in. And I think you kind of have to be if your husband is a quarterback in the NFL. But we do see that both Mahomes and Mariota are married to athletes. And I'm not sure if that's true for cousins. His wife isn't an athlete, is she? No, no she's not. Okay, so I'm, I'm wondering, <laughs> yeah, and I'm wondering if that makes for a different kind of partnership if your husband is a quarterback and you as his wife kind of, you know, have been an athlete also understand those stakes on the field. You know, we know that Brittany used to be a professional soccer player, for instance, and we see Mariota's wife, you know, helping him study for plays. And it just seems like something that 
just feels like very much the part of the rhythm of the relationship in a way that, you know, kind of seems very natural. Does that make sense? For sure. I mean, I, I definitely think it comes into play with Patrick and Brittany. I mean, I think they sort of have that built into how they interact with one another. You know, I think there's, you know, they call each other, you know, pet names that you hear on a sports field. Like the, she calls him bro and he calls her bro. Um, but I think it absolutely helps that she understands like this is what it takes to be an athlete. Like she understands the demands. I mean, she was a professional athlete. She played professionally in uh, Europe uh, for soccer. So I certainly think that helps their relationship. She knows what it takes for him to succeed. And I think it sort of gives them a common ground to, to, to talk about. One of the things that was unfortunately not in the documentary that he told me he does is after games, he comes home and makes Brittany watch the telecast of the Chiefs game he just played with her until the very end before they can go to bed. The game that she was just at, usually? Yeah, and the way he just played. <laughs> he literally gets home, and that's the first thing he wants to do is watch the game with her. Hmm. Um, so anyway, I think it's really, I think it's cool. I think it helps, I'm sure it helps the strength of their marriage that they have that common ground. And just like she comes to his games, he, you know, he attended uh, Casey Current game with her early in the season. Well, a follow-up question to that, because, you know, we do actually see Mahomes' wife on the sidelines of the field at the beginning of every game, and he runs over, he kisses her, he tells her he loves her. A lot of players say that kind of thing is a distraction. Is this just part of his looseness, that he doesn't see these kinds of, like, personal life, inter, you know, interacting with the football life as being a distraction? Definitely. For him, it's a distraction if she's not there. I can tell mm. you that at the away game in San Francisco, we had planned on filming her get to the from the airport to the game and she was late and he didn't see her. Um, and he pointed that out afterwards when he saw her outside the locker room. He says, what happened? You weren't there in pregame. I think for him, his family is such a stabilizing presence for, you know, he's a superstar athlete. He's in a million commercials. He's the face of the league. But I'll tell you, more than anyone I know, he loves to just come home, veg out on the couch and hang out with his wife and watch TV with his kids. Uh, hmm. as hard as that might be to believe from everything people see about him. And shoot apples at uh, tanks at the orchard. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty sweet. <laughs> I wish I could have shot some apples. <laughs> I was jealous of that. <laughs> yeah, that looked fun. Not all athletes compete in front of millions. Just a few hundred spectators can make or break Ohio Valley wrestling. Their wannabe future superstars learned the ropes from ex-WWE wrestler Al Snow. The matches might be fake, but the struggles these performers face are real. And if the OVW can't start turning a profit, its new investors might have to shut it down. In September, I pinned down director and executive producer Greg Whiteley about the many colorful characters in his Netflix series, Wrestlers. Fans cheered the baby faces and jeered the heels, but their lives are more complex than being a hero or a villain. Among those featured include mother and daughter wrestlers whose scripted grudge match was fueled by years of very personal pain. One person that you feature is Hollywood Haley J, and she is the daughter of the amazing Maria, also a central figure. And at the beginning of the documentary, we keep hearing that she's immature, that she has this chip on her shoulder. And then we eventually learn that it's because she's carrying around this tremendous amount of pain and resentment that stems from her childhood and her unresolved issues with her mom. Did it take time to get her to open up about that as you were making this film? Yeah, it did. When I say that, the wrestlers were open and eager to be on camera. Uh, that was everyone but Haley. Haley could, could really care less about who we were and what we were trying to do. 
in, in the first weeks that we were there filming. Uh, but she was so alluring as, uh, as a personality that we just, we couldn't give up on, on her. When my mother went to jail, we were bouncing around from house to house. Anywhere we went to, Haley J was not the favorite, me and my brother. I always got beat up, spit on, called a bitch, wasn't allowed to talk to my mother when she was in jail on the phone. My mom was locked up and I was unhappy. I was going through a lot of things I already felt by myself, I guess. And then um, when she gets out of jail, she starts wrestling and getting her life together. She was gone all the time and I was out doing whatever I wanted to do. You know. To her credit, I think eventually she began to catch the spirit of the story we were trying to tell and began to open up. But it took time. Well, Al builds this storyline of Haley and her mom, uh, where they eventually end up having this death match. And this is where they hit each other with all sorts of props. And unlike in other matches, there's a lot of reality here. Uh, The blood is real. At one point, they keep body slamming each other into hundreds or more uh, thumbtacks on the mat. And in the cutaways, we can see the reactions of the crowd and the crew behind the scenes change. Like there's something else completely going on here. Can you talk about what it was like to be there uh, making that scene? Yeah, I will. So the to set the scene, um, as Haley and Maria, they spend, Al spends many, many weeks leading up to this match where this mother and daughter, these two characters mother who are mother and daughter are sparring with each other. They keep coming into conflict with each other. It, it begins one night when Maria has to go out there and reprimand Haley for misbehaving in the ring. And they get into a shoving match where Maria has to shove her own daughter down. Well, by the time we get to the ring, you can feel that there is a tremendous amount of resentment and anger and hatred even on the part of Haley towards her mom. And there's a huge amount of regret and guilt and remorse on the part of the mom. Al has always taught that the very best gimmicks or wrestling personas are grounded in some element of reality. And so when we as a crew were watching that match that night, there were elements of what was happening inside that ring that were in fact true to life. I just want this to be over. Every shot, I just reminded her of Maria, what she's lost. Right now, the arena of Carnage, Haley Jane. They start making each other bleed. And there is a, some very rich symbolism to when a, a figure bleeds. And even if it's done just through thumbtacks, uh, or in the case of Maria, a razor blade that's, that's concealed inside her finger that she's taped on the edge of her finger, it still is so jarring to see real blood in person, uh, but particularly in this wrestling match where it's supposed to be fake that you could feel the audience, for some members of the audience, it was just too much. We saw people get up and leave. Hmm. For others, it quickly went to something very deep and visceral. And in that match, Haley eviscerates her mom and her mom allows it to happen. As soon as she sees what she's done to her mom, 
Haley softens. And there is this very moving reconciliation. And anybody that knows their true behind the scenes story, that was art imitating life. So Haley's in this relationship with another wrestler who's called Darkstorm. Through the series, we see they have this very volatile, toxic relationship, which culminates in a domestic violence incident. And in the finale, they seem to be reconciling, potentially getting back together. Can you give me your take on that? What was that like to witness as you were making the series? That's a that's really complicated. I, I think, you know, domestic violence is not something that should be taken lightly. You wouldn't ever want to stand back and, I think, exploit an incident of domestic violence for entertainment purposes. As the documentarians in trying to tell their true life stories, it became clear to us that there was a volatility to their relationship that, to their credit, they were completely honest about. When you asked Haley about it, she was honest about her abuse of Darkstorm. And when you asked Darkstorm, he was honest about his uh, abuse of Haley. People are extremely complicated. I think I think our job in those instances is to document it as authentically as possible and sort of trust that what is right and true, if properly documented, can then become something for an audience to begin to digest and parse through and and debate and think through. And I I want to be careful that I am not leading the audience with uh, too heavy of a hand that would somehow rob them of that ability to digest what are very complicated human uh, emotions, uh, human um, relationships are fraught with all kinds of things that are, I think are, we're sometimes tempted to paint with a, a broad brush. And I think the beauty of this type of storytelling is to honor its complexity and, and let audiences choose for themselves what they think is right or wrong. And, and I, I think both Haley and Darkstorm give us a lot to think about. If fantasies turn real intrigue you, look no further than the Netflix series Mer People. We meet the men and women who zip themselves into rubber fins and swim like the magical creatures of lore. But being a mermaid is no day at the beach. These underwater performers incur great physical pain and financial cost for their art. And many dream of turning their hobby into a paid gig or winning a major award. When I talked to executive producer and director Cynthia Wade in June, we marveled at the splashy backstories and upstream journeys of the performers in Merpeople. But the emotional center of the series is a struggling mermaid named Sparkles. When we first meet her, she's an underdog honing her craft. But later, Sparkles is given the chance to fulfill her big dreams of being a big fish. Sparkles is, I think, an important backbone in the series because Sparkles is all of us, right? Sparkles is the girl next door. Sparkles embodies all of our sort of just mortal desires to be something better than, you know, or to move out of wherever, you know, if you're in a job that you don't fully love or you're just have a job because you need to pay the bills, but you're dreaming bigger, that's Sparkles. And so Sparkles is an important backbone in the series because we... Can, we can really understand mermaiding and, and understand the stakes through through her eyes. <laughs> yeah, sparkles. Um, sparkles often has bad luck, 
um, which makes her incredibly charming. And, and also you just root for her even more. So that was surprising. Uh, it was a super hot day in Little Rock, Arkansas. <laughs> when we were shooting, it was, um, you know, probably August in Little Rock. Super, super hot day. She was late. Yeah. Ah, why is everything breaking today? <laughs> no, it's like it came off the zipper. Like um, the zipper broke on one side. <gasps> Shut up. No, like seriously. No way. <gasps> There's no way to fix that. Are you kidding me right now? No, that happened in real time. And I just thought my cameraman, Bo, just kept filming it. And I thought, you know what? I just have to just be quiet and just let this play out. So I was mm. very much crouched in the corner, holding the monitor with the earphones on, just kind of like, OK, let's sort of see what happens. Well, we go from that moment to this incredible moment because we know that Sparkles had bombed this past audition for Morgana. And to be honest, you know, I found myself wondering, is she actually even good at this mermaiding thing, knowing that she can't practice, you know, um, but she does get this other chance to do this showcase at Mermagicon. Can you tell me how you felt watching Morgana's reaction to Sparkles at this moment where she just completely shines at Mermagicon and shows everyone what she can do? Yeah, I mean, that was a Mermagicon was a really great um, shoot um, that day. Most of this was shot on single camera, which is really tough. We had a very small but mighty crew. Um, Mermagicon was one of the few days that we had two cameras so that we could really be on Sparkles, but then we could be on Morgana simultaneously. So that was, and oh, of course, we had an underwater camera for that, for that day. <gasps> Sparkles! Oh my God! Look at how slow she is. Yes, beautiful slow. It's like she's in slow motion. It's fantastic. That was just, I think, a relief for us. And you can feel it in the edit. Just a relief after all of that tension. And she was like, I mean, she barely made it there to Magicon in her little car, in her little broken down car. Like it was touch and go whether she was going to make it to Mermagicon. So that I think was just like exhaling for us. And I think is exhaling for the audience. It was really an awesome shooting day. Honestly, her journey is so interesting because then she gets invited to Las Vegas and you just see the insecurity again when she goes into the hotel room and there are all those women there that are also tight and have their own language. And, you know, she's like, hi. And then she has that terrible moment of hyperthermia. We have to pull Sparkles. Sparkles out. Come out right now. Out, 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 out. I can tell you're hypothermic. We got to get out. I'm going to lift. I need to get your butt up here. How are your muscles? Are you seizing? Uh, was she worried that she just blew it again right. at that moment? What she said to me afterwards was, I hope that I'm a little bit worried that I'm just always going to be the mermaid that messes up in this series. And I'm kind of embarrassed. You know, we just we were close. I was, was really honestly close with all of the mermaids that we were filming. In, and I just was like, you know what? You are you are in many ways representing our greatest fears, but also our greatest hopes. And we're going to be on the journey with you. And I really think the audience is going to be rooting for you and on the journey with you. So let's just see where this plays out. Let's just let's just keep going. It takes an enormous amount, I think, of vulnerability to be in a documentary. I think it honestly, for the production side, also takes an enormous amount of vulnerability to make a, a documentary. Like, I didn't want to make something that was 
you know, somehow like putting on a monocle and being like, well, who are these mer people? Let's look into their yeah. psychology. Like that's, first of all, that's like from the outside and that's just icky and boring. And I didn't want to do something where it was like, you know, let's have one mermaid pit against another mermaid, sort of like that traditional reality, gross pitting against one. You know, I didn't want to do a feud like, within subcultures, yeah, right? It's just like, that's not <laughs> yeah. the filmmaker that I am. And it's not the team that I work with. It really should be sort of transcend that and be about our greatest hopes. And, and Sparkles really embodies that. That takes a lot of trust and vulnerability and sort of tr- trying and bonding. But I think she felt very safe and close to our crew. You know, what's great about her, her arc is that she fails and she just immediately gets up and just tries again. And so it's yes. such a testament to how we should all be. There's also this kind of American story, I think. I mean, there's a universal appeal to mermaiding, but there's something about just the American optimism, like, all right, I'm going to dust myself off. I'm going to get up. I'm going to be inventive. I'm going to try it again. Um, This kind of entrepreneurial spirit that I think runs through her narrative in particular that um, I think just speaks to a lot of us. Classic videos, boyish good looks, hit after hit. For a short time in the 80s, they were the biggest band in the world. Andrew Ridgely and George Michael created Wham! and over four years recorded some of the most iconic songs in pop music. And then it was over. In the Netflix documentary Wham!, we hear their story for the first time in George and Andrew's own words. How they met, how they created the songs, and what happened when one of them became a superstar and one of them faded from the spotlight. I interviewed producer Simon Halfen in July about the pair's creative partnership and lasting friendship. Often overshadowed by George Michael's solo career, we talked about the quality and impact of Wham!'s music. Even on the early demos, he has a great singing voice. Like, did people pay attention to that? Were they paying attention to his voice? Because he talks about himself as a producer. He obviously felt very strongly about being a songwriter. They had all his attention to detail about their look and image. But his voice is incredible. Yeah, and you know what? I think you're absolutely right. I, th- I don't think they did immediately. And that kind of comes across in the film as well where George kind of gets that sort of disappointment that they're not being taken seriously. You know, they were getting a lot of attention in the kind of uh, pinup magazines because they'd become these pop star pinups. So George found that a little uncomfortable because he felt that he was more than that. But I think it wasn't until later when people kind of started to listen clearly and just be able to listen to his voice. I mean, some years later, George, you know, after the Faith album, album cover that I worked on with George was Listen Without Prejudice and that was really Iconic by the way <laughs> Thank you no, I love that <laughs> but the, the point being that he just wanted the people to listen to the songs that's why there was no photo of him on the cover he didn't do pop videos for it because he just wanted his voice to be heard hmm. and I think that deed was probably sown way way back from the Wham period where he was kind of thrust into being a pinup and the reviews were very negative about these guys, you know, banal. Thick. Thick, yeah. And, and and that was one thing about both George and Andrew is they're incredibly bright. Yes. Incredibly. You can see, in the, even when they're interviewed at the age of 19, they're incredibly eloquent and focused and driven. The press caught up eventually, I think, but it took them a while. So there's this incredible 
And this, again, really is a testament to the quality of that interview that you were able to source of George Michael, where he tells the story about being in Ibiza, filming the video for Club Tropicana and coming out to Andrew and Shirley. And they basically talk him out of telling his father, Jack, that he's gay. And he then says, But the point being, I really, really asked the wrong people. I mean, you know, we were 19, 20 years old. Our perspective was a little narrower. Can you talk a little bit about that long-term impact of not coming out? Because he then had to live this life as a faux pinup. Yeah, both George and Andrew say that in the film when he says, oh, they were the wrong people to ask. I mean, the implication is they're the wrong people to ask because they're kids. And yes, <laughs> basically it's like, oh, don't do that. Don't tell your dad. It wasn't for any other implication. And don't get your dad upset. So it's got a real charm to it in the sense that certain things, you know, if you're a kid and you're smoking a cigarette or something, don't tell your dad. You know, it's that thing. You don't want them to find out something of that nature. And I think, as George says, you know, he, he realised that was a missed opportunity. And, you know, it was a different time, the 80s, I think, in the way people perceived anyone that said they were gay. I remember George saying that one of his other concerns about telling his mum that he was gay was he didn't want her to be worried about AIDS. Because mm. it was, you know, everywhere you looked in the papers, it was like the gay man's play. Mm. It didn't make for happy reading and it was an awful time for the gay community. And, and maybe there was some sort of comfort and security in being closeted, yeah, knowing you wouldn't have to expose his mum to that because he was ever so close with his mum. We see all these news clips where they're being asked about sex and Andrew has all these, you know, news tabloid news stories about being really promiscuous and being a party guy. Yeah. Was that image that he was sort of very happily, it seems, or like, OK, with being out there? Was he sort of playing cover a little bit for George or was that just a, a side effect of that? I think that was definitely a side effect of that. I don't think that was intentional. I don't think he was trying to protect George by being... Randy Andy, I think it, you know, Andrew was out and about carousing quite a bit. So it was quite easy to focus on that. Mm. And George kind of just left to get on and do his own thing, really, in a more discreet fashion, perhaps. Yeah. So the documentary also touches on something really interesting, and that's this brief tension they had over songwriting when Andrew acknowledges that George's talent has surpassed him and George feels that songwriting has become very important to him. Yeah. And we hear this conversation happens once. I think that's George's point of view. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. George really felt that he had that calling. That was his thing was songwriting. George felt supremely confident in being able to deliver the promise of Wham's full potential yeah. by these songs and not having to sit there and wait for Andrew to kind of co-write or write half an album or whatever it would be. Right. You know, and Andrew, in fairness, you know, as, as uncomfortable as that conversation was, took it on the chin and saw the bigger picture and said, yeah, you know, listen, if, as he says, if I can be a part of this, then then great. I, I don't want to um, in any way, though, diminish Andrew's contributions musically to the sound of Wham, though, because I feel like... I listen to Wham and I listen to George Michael's a solo artist and a lot of those genetics carry over. But Wham has this very singular, joyful club. And it feels like Andrew's production, his personality, that initial thing that brought them together very much 
makes their sound what it is. Oh, 100%. I think one of the other interesting things is Simon Napier-Bell, who was their manager. He wasn't interviewed for the film because he didn't interview, but we had a great archive of him talking about George and Andrew from the time when he was managing them. And he said... Contrary to what most people say, that Andrew had no part in Wham, it's totally the opposite. Wham was Andrew. And George, when he was younger, copied Andrew. It was Andrew and Andrew the real Andrew and the fake one. And it was only as the process unfolded and the, and the bands went from success to success that George got that confidence himself. And with that, the confidence as a songwriter. And uh, it was a kind of supreme confidence as well, because he just knew that his songs were good and each time getting better. That's it for this week's episode. For more of my takes and favorites from 2023, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On!, Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, TV shows, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack and Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 